though. Um, most of us, we know kind of when the temple idea started, right? It, it, with David. David's imagination was filled with this, this temple life. God takes it, and he, uh, he even makes it bigger through Solomon. Solomon builds it. But, but let, me, let me pose something to you for a minute. I, I don't think that the temple ideology started there. I think when we begin to look through Near Eastern eyes and look at the, some of the mythologies of, of uh, Near Eastern writing, what we see, if we go all the w- way back to creation and the six stages of creation, is we actually have the first time in Scripture temple ideology being painted for us. But this God is not like any of the other gods. Because all the other gods, they have to have man build his temple. Right? But that's not how this God works. This God's too big for that. This God is too glorious for that. Only this God can build his own temple. In fact, isn't this what Scripture tells us? Using temple language that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. It says that the earth is full of his glory. This is all temple language. And God does not leave it up to man to build him his temple. He builds it. And the entire universe is the temple of God. Now, when you look back into any, any kind of mythology or you look back into history, if you've traveled, if you've traveled in, uh, in wherever uh, where some civilization began, in, in Turkey or what have you, I've seen movies about epics. And what, what you see is in either the middle of or sometimes even on the outside, there's one thing that is very consistent in every temple. Do you know what it is? a statue of that God or the image of God. Every temple has it. And what that image was supposed to do is to image God to the rest of creation or the surroundings and also be a reflection of worship back to that God. Right? This sounds very familiar to Genesis, yes? Right? God creates his temple and when he's done, he puts his image in it. And that's what we do. We image God to creation. Now, the thing about temples is that often the life that happens inside the temple is very different than the life that happens outside of the temple, right? To, the word we use for that is worship, okay? But whatever the life is inside of that temple, that God, whatever that God, whoever that God is, that God determines what is pure, what is holy. He doesn't use, or she does not use, man's definition of it. For instance, uh, the, god, the, uh, the goddess Artemis, okay? If you, if you studied a little bit about that, you know the things that happened in her temple, they were just, they were horrible. They, they were very defiling. They were very sick, right? But inside that temple, to that civilization, it was not sick. It was not disgusting. It was purity because that god defined what purity was. It was holy. It was worship. Not according to us, but according to that God. So God sits, sets up a way of life inside his temple, worship, and he gets to define what love is. He gets to define what purity is. He defines all of this, and when his creation, his image, live this out, it is his worship. When his 
image decides to live out what they think is right as opposed to God, we call that, and we'll see this kind of language used later on uh, in in Ezekiel and in Daniel and, and so on and so on, we call that that we have defiled the temple. And oftentimes, the temple is either destroyed, this God abandons the temple, but it can no longer be used. It has been, it's been tarnished, which is the name we use for that is the fall. We have now defiled God's temple. God kind of, in a, in a, in a temple-speaking way, abandons his temple and chaos sets in. The, the result, God says, okay, you want to live this way? You want to worship this way? I'm not going to fight you on it. I will give you what you want. He abandons it and chaos takes over. Okay, and now to cut it really, to, to cut the story in half, we, we know what happens. We, we, see, we see the result, especially in Genesis 10 through 11, of what it looks like when man gets to do what man wants to do without respecting, respecting and honoring God as the God. And chaos wins, looks like it wins. But we know that God's response to our defilement is not complete destruction. He's got a plan, right? He's got a restoration plan. He's going to put it back into being. And people have moved so far from God that he wants to give them an image of what it used to be, okay? And a picture of what one day will be. And so now God, as we fast forward several thousand years, he paints, he puts in the imagination of David a temple. Solomon builds it. And the temple... The idea of the temple now, it is the place in the midst of all chaos, it is the place where heaven and earth come together. Okay? It's the place where heaven and earth come together. And the first time we see this picture, this idea of heaven and earth coming together is is with Jacob at at a place they call Bethel, where, where Jacob in his dream, heaven and earth come together. And this is God's vision for the future. And so in this temple, we have this tangible space in time of where heaven and earth comes together, God's presence reigns, and when his people want to be in his presence, they go there. Okay? The temple is not his presence, but it is more a symbol of it. The temple temple is not heaven and earth, but it is a symbol of it. And then as time went on, they set up two systems within this temple. Okay? Again, I'm leaving a lot of stuff out. Some of you who are very knowledgeable about this are thinking, there's, there's a lot missing here. There is, but we just don't have time for all of it. Okay, but there are two systems that are set up. And so here, I want you, if you've got your notes out, kind of jot these down because we're going to go back to these. We're going to come back to these towards the end. Okay, so first of all, if we want to write down what the temple means, here's, here's a decent definition. The temple, <coughs> excuse me, is the sign and means of God's presence with his people, okay? It is not his presence, but it is kind of the means to it. It is the conductor. We're back to that, con- that, that conductor idea, that lightning rod idea. It's the sign and means of God's presence with his people where heaven and earth come together as to show what it might look like if God were to rule on earth as it is in heaven. It is the sign and means of God's presence with his people where heaven and earth come together. Almost a tangible picture of what it might look like for God to rule on earth as it is in heaven. So there's our temple definition. That's that's what we're going to use. 
you probably write a paragraph. You probably write a couple pages to define what temple actually is, but I'm not that smart and we don't have enough time, so we're just going to go with that. Um, but inside of that temple, I said there were, you, whatever we want to call them, ideologies, systems, whatever words you want to use is fine. Uh, to use one of Austin's favorite words, pillars, I don't care. Um, that was an inside joke, sorry. Um, so we have, the first system is the law, okay? The law system. Now the law is given from heaven to earth for the purpose of ordering the lives of God's people in such a way that they live on earth as it is in heaven. The law is given from heaven to earth to help order the lives of God's people in such a way that they live on earth as it is in heaven. So we have the temple, which encompasses everything. We have the law is one of the systems. The other system is the the sacrificial system or the sacrifice and offering system. And this was created as a way to make real the unity between God and man. Okay? It didn't make the unity between God and man happen, but it kind of made it real, tangible. It was a, it was a symbol, it was a visualization of the restoration between God and man. You got that? We good there? So we're going we're to kind of come back to those systems. Okay? But you'd remove those systems out of the temple, and the temple's really just a pretty building. Okay? You take those out, and the temple's not, it's not anything. But, so here's what else Scripture tells us. If we jump forward, which the, the Jews didn't have this vantage point, but I think we see it throughout, throughout their writings. If you jump forward to Revelation 21, what we find is that it was never God's purpose for the temple to be ultimate. It's never God's purpose for the law system or the sacrifice system to be ultimate. In fact, Revelation 21 talks about a city, a new heaven and a new earth, and in the center of the city, there's no, there, there's no temple. So the temple was always supposed to be a, a visual reminder of what was at creation and a reminder or a picture of what will be when all of heaven and all of earth actually do come together. Okay? The problem begins to happen we know this. We think about this in, in, in several places in life. The problem begins to happen is when that which was never meant to be ultimate is made ultimate. Right? Because we start down this, this line, uh, we, we kind of digress. First serves its purpose, and then we get so geeked out on trying to protect that, that it becomes the purpose. The problem is we are worshiping creatures, and we will always worship God or we will worship self. And if we, if we turn those things into the ultimate, they end up being a means in which we worship self. In which we push our own agenda. Does that make sense? So, so if you remember what the temple is and what it was supposed to be, it was where heaven and earth come together. The place where God's people, cut, they, they, they would come to be in the presence of God. The irony of Mark 11 through 12 is that Jesus, God made man, God in the flesh, shows up in the place where they're supposed to recognize God and they can't even see him. And he says, screw it. I won't even give you my presence. I will show you myself. 
and they don't recognize him at all. Because that which was never supposed to be ultimate was made ultimate and thus turned into systems used to perpetuate the glory of themselves. Self-promotion, self-love, self-rule. Okay? And so this whole thing that I just spent too much time on um, is the backdrop to what's, to what's going on. And so uh, our first stop on our way to love God and love neighbor is, is in Mark 12, 18 uh, through 27. I don't have enough time to go into it. I really kind of would, would, would like to, but basically it is an argument between Jesus and the Sadducees about a law taken out of, I think, I think, it's, I think it's Deuteronomy 25, okay? And what What's going on in this section? This is the, this is the argument that, that Spencer read uh, about, um, you know, the, the, the woman marrying the, the, the man and then he dies and then she's supposed to, or he's, yeah, his brother's supposed to marry her, which sounds really creepy and weird to me. And talk about having really in-depth discussions before you marry somebody because of what, I don't know. Um, but this is what's going on. Okay, this is the argument that's going on. But, but and, and what a lot of times happens in, in this text is it gets dumbed down to, this is the text we use to prove that there is no marriage. There is nobody married in the afterlife when heaven and earth come together. And that's not what's happening at all. It's, it's actually not what's saying. Mar- Jesus never says people won't be married in the afterlife. In fact, when you look into the original text, what he is actually arguing with them about in reference to the resurrection are, are two different types of systems that were set up. The, he's talking about pre-fall systems, okay? Systems that were made before the fall. So these, were, these are systems that uh, were, were made to, to better humanity. They were, made to, uh, they were made to reflect God to his creation. And they were made to glorify God. And these are systems that were set up before the fall. And then systems that were set up after the fall. And these systems were set up because chaos and death reigned. They were set up to protect God's people from injustice, especially from each other, and, and to protect them from the result of death, if that makes sense. Because death is not here. I mean, it, it, it's here. So they're going to die, and so God sets up a system that's going to kind of protect them from the results of that death. Does that make sense? And so... Um, when, when, you, when, you begin to, when you begin to dig deeper into the text, what you find is that these systems were set up to basically stop the injustices and the inequality that were going on between men and women. That's why they were set up. And what has happened is, remember, when you make that which was never supposed to be ultimate into something ultimate... You, you really begin to self-promote. When you begin to quantify that which was never supposed to be quantified, when you begin to strip something of its meaning just to follow the law, you begin, you begin to lose it. And this is exactly what the Sadducees had done, right? They, they'd kind of gotten in bed with Herod's clan and Rome, and, and this was all about self-promotion. And so they were following the letter of the law in this, in this instance, but that which was created to actually give justice to women to, to kind of 
draw a line between the inequality between men and women from other pagan societies and them. That which was created for that now became a tool that actually perpetuated that. And so Jesus, in, in, this, in this argument, he, he tells them the reason they miss the reality of the resurrection, which the reality of the resurrection, if you listen to their argument, was they believed when, when they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but their, their thought was if it were to exist, that things would just kind of continue as they were, except they would get to ultimately just rule everybody. And these systems that were now turned into injustice would, would continue. And, and Jesus is saying, look, these were set up to protect people from injustice and the result of death. In the resurrection, there'll be no injustice and no death. Therefore, these systems no longer apply. But I think he was even stretching further and saying those who are, who are learning how to live the resurrection life now no longer even need to follow these systems, if, if that makes sense. And then Jesus says something kind of unique. And this is the line I want to hold on to as we, as we drop down into where, where that great commandment is. He says, the very reason that you have, you have gotten to the point where you are misusing this command, the very reason you don't even see the, the reality of the resurrection, this is what he says, is because you, need, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words... You quit trusting God to do through this command what he only has the ability to do. And you decided to take control of this command, to quantify it, to rule with it, and ended up through that causing injustice and pain and inequality. Here's a good example of that today. The church. Right? In Scripture, who does Christ say is going to build his church? Anybody know? He is. He is. Yet go to any bookstore, several conferences, and we have people making money hand over fist teaching us how to build his church. Why? Because we don't know our scripture nor the power of God. The power of God is saying this thing is so beautiful that if you decide you need to start controlling it, you will end up using it for inequality and injustice. And, and if we look through history, has that been the case? It has been. It absolutely has been. Because when you begin to quantify something that was supposed to be this beautiful picture of God's justice and God's equality and God's love for humanity, and we begin to make it the ultimate. Remember, the church is not the ultimate. God is. We begin to make it the ultimate. We actually use it for what it was never even supposed to be. We begin to use it for what it was meant to oppose. And this is what he is attacking the Sadducees on. He's turning their attack on them. He's saying, your question is stupid. It's like asking, does two plus two equal green? Here's, here's a better question. And then he turns it and he attacks them with it. And he says, we don't even have an argument because you don't know the scripture and much less you don't even know the power of God that will make this happen. So we have a scribe now who's kind of been eavesdropping Right? We're, we're going down into that, to that section. He's been eavesdropping this whole time. And he likes Jesus' answers. One of the few times where one of the Pharisees or the scribes agrees with Jesus. 
And he comes to Jesus after he eavesdropped and listens to his response and is pleased with his response. Uh, some of your commentaries will tell you that he, he's aggressive towards Jesus. I don't think that's what's happening. I think he's being sincere. Because what we know through extra biblical history is that around this time, there's about 613 laws. It's like an IRS book. And he is, there's this great debate going on um, on which commandment is the greatest, which law is, is the greatest. There are people kind of arguing, disputing this, because it's, it's, it's like, which is, which is the, not that the law is supposed to be ultimate, but of the laws, which is the ultimate? Because I can't memorize 613 laws. So I need to know the one that lines me up that kind of helps me fulfill this. And so he goes to Jesus and he asks, from what, in my opinion, a very sincere question. But now, instead of just asking the question of which is the best, which is the best way to live, do you, do you remember our definition of, of law? What the law system was? We, we wrote it down. The law was given from heaven to earth for the purpose of ordering the lives of God's people to live life on earth as it is in heaven. So the actual question being posed to Jesus is which law assures that I am beginning to live life here on earth as it is in heaven? Or which law, to to stay with the conversation prior to this, which law is helping me live what I anticipate the resurrection life to be now? This is not which is the best. But which is helping me, which is actually forming me to be the person that lives on earth as it is in heaven? This is the question that's being asked. So Jesus' response to him is the law that assures you that you are living life on earth just as it is in heaven or to stay consistent with the resurrection talk. The law that assures you that you are reaching forward into the future resurrection and living it now is when you begin to love God with every fiber of your being and love your neighbor in the same way. Now, here's just a little sidestep on that. The reason, the reason loving neighbor is considered second to loving God is not because of value, right? It says the second is like it but it's because of its dependence. Does that make sense? It depends on you loving God with everything. Because here's the deal. I'm a very selfish person, and I like me a lot. So if I am loving me, if I am not loving God with every fiber of my being, that ultimately says I'm loving me with every fiber of my being, which makes it impossible for me to love neighbor with everything I've got. Because sooner or later, loving neighbor with everything I got puts me in compromise with me. Right? So the only way to possibly love neighbor that way is when I ditch me and love God with everything I am because you become like that which you love. And God is the ultimate picture of sacrifice. And in order to love my neighbor that way, I have to to leave me to love him to make that law possible. And what Jesus is saying is that 
while he is the fulfillment of the law. I'm going to use that law as the conductor, if you will, as the portal into turning you into the human beings that I destined you to be. You cannot be turned into that sort of human being without this law because it's the law I'm choosing to turn you into that person. In other words, this single law just replaced the entire law system because it is creating in each of us that which the law never could create. Does that make sense? So the first thing that happens to the believer when they commit themselves to this law is that we are actually, God is using it to create us into the beings who live on earth like it is in heaven, who begin to live the resurrection life now. He is turning us into that being. <clears throat> then it almost gets, then, then, then the scribe kind of goes into a different direction. When we get down to verse 33, the scribe, he, he makes an interesting jump. Can you put verse 33 out, up there? Here's what he says. If we can do that. One more second. Yeah, there we go. Okay. And you shall love the Lord your God uh, with, with and, and we'll go to 34 of that, with all your heart. And w- no, that's cool. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Let's, let's go next. This, uh, let's see, are we at 33, 34? They're not numbered. Okay, well, I'm just... That was tricky then. Okay, here we go. We're going to pick up in 33. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, and we'll just stay here, is much more. Now that phrase, much more, literally means to, it accomplishes much more and beyond. Beyond what? What does it accomplish more than and beyond? All whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So we've jumped. We've jumped from the law system. Remember, there's two systems. We've jumped from the law system. Now he's talking about the sacrifice system. Remember what the sacrifice system was supposed to uh, accomplish? Yeah, let's see. Where do I have that written down at? It created a way to make real the unity between God and man. It symbolized restoration between God and man. It, in other words, that this simple loving God and loving neighbor is taking place of the entire sacrifice and offering system and is accomplishing more and beyond in the believer what the entire system itself was supposed to accomplish. The sacrificial system, remember, created a way for a moment, to make real. It wasn't the unity between God and man, but it made that unity real. It made it life. It made it tangible between God and man. In other words, what the scribe is saying and what Jesus agrees to, is not just his idea, Jesus agrees with him, 
is that this life of being poured out for loving God and loving neighbor is not just a nice way to live, but it is the way that makes real in our everyday life the unity between God and man that was restored by the final sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, this thing doesn't make the unity a reality. Jesus was the sacrifice that made it the reality. But this is the tool that Jesus uses to make it real in our lives. Oftentimes, we feel like we're so far from God. We do all these different weird works. We show up to church. We read our Bible more. We pray more. None of those are wrong. I advise you to do them. But what we often neglect is the power of God that is transferred to us when we pour our lives out for loving him with everything we are and loving our neighbor the same way. It is through that, for some reason, I don't know why he chose it, he could have chosen anything, but it is in that law that he makes his relationship with you tangible and real. Now, do you remember what we said happens if the law system and the sacrifice system disappear? What happens to the temple? Yeah, it has no use anymore either, right? So here's what the scribe is saying. This loving God and loving neighbor, it even takes the place of the temple. Do you remember what the temple was? It was the conduit of God's presence. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. The scribe is saying the very reason most of us don't know the presence of God in our lives, the very reason we don't live our lives people around us in such a way that they see heaven and earth come together in us is because we have forgot the power that actually resides in loving God and loving neighbor. This is the tool that God has used to pour his presence on his people. This is what worship is. Sure, we have an expression of it up here. We have an expression of it right here. But what God is telling the scribe, what God is telling us, is that it's not just a good way to live, but it is the way I use to transform you. It is the tool I use to bring my presence to earth. It is the way that heaven and earth come together, not in a building, but in you. And these are the people he wants living in their community around people who are far from him. He wants them to have a picture of him. And that only happens when we sell out. See, remember, the scribes forgot the power of the scriptures, so they began to quantify it and manage it and use logic and what have you, which dumbed it down. I think if we let go of all of our quantifying, all of our, does this work here? Does this work there? That those around us get a picture of heaven and then God uses that to transform us into the people he wants us to be. Let's pray.